Well, thank you so much for joining us here at uh, Trinity Church. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are gathered to hear God's Word because we believe that the Word of God forms the people of God, not the other way around. We recognize God's Word, but understand that it's not our creation. Therefore, uh, at uh, Trinity Church here, we have an unusual task in preaching, unusual at least for monologues in our day. We're not called to entertain you, not called to innovate, come up with something new, but we're instead called to be faithful in explaining what God's word means and uh, helping us apply it to our lives. We primarily do that going chapter by chapter uh, paragraph by paragraph through books of the Bible, like we're doing right now, going through uh, Matthew's gospel. Today we're in Matthew 13. If you didn't get a listening guide, you can lift your hand up, and uh, Todd would love to get you one from the back, has a little place to take notes, reminder of the points, and uh, there's also uh, Bibles in the seat backs uh, in front of you, uh, if you would like. Well, one interesting thing you may have noticed if you've uh, been with us for a little while, is that it's not the same person up here preaching every Sunday, unless I like shaved and look a lot different than uh, DJ uh, last week. But uh, we, we do that purposefully, not because we believe we're better than anyone who has one main preacher, but we understand the important part is us proclaiming God's word whether it's DJ up here, whether it's Todd, whether it's me up here, that ultimately we are Jesus's church formed by his word, not my church, not DJ's church, not Todd's church. We ultimately belong to Jesus. And, and as we jump into the middle of uh, Matthew's gospel, it, it is important uh, for us to re remind ourselves of where we're at. If you just have a New Testament in front of you, or if you typed the scripture reference into your Bible app, you, you might not realize we're two-thirds of the way uh, through our Bible. Certainly uh, not at the beginning. And the entire Old Testament that, that comes before this is leading up to and preparing for this coming of Jesus the Messiah. Some of the most basic questions in the reader's mind without understanding that, whoa, I'm, I, there's a lot that came before this passage um, in, the, in the Bible is, what is the, this problem with the whole human race? Why can't it easily be fixed? And now, why has Jesus come? Who is he? And what has he come to do? The coming of Jesus didn't just start in Matthew, but was foretold long ago, all the way back in Genesis, the book of beginnings. The, this seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. And, and the rest of the Old Testament is about how God called out one family to demonstrate who he is and what he's like to the rest of the world and how they lived a whole lot more like sons of the devil than sons of God. And Jesus arrives on the scene as the Messiah Israel had been longing for, 
But as we've already seen in this gospel, the people you would have thought would have run to, embraced this Messiah, have done far from that. The religious leaders hate him, despise him, are out to get, to try to entrap him. While a ragtag group of followers, the the 12 disciples and um, others, have embraced him. Our passage today is Matthew 13, uh, starting with uh, verse uh, 44. We're um, concluding Jesus's, this is a, a chapter of a bunch of parables, and we have uh, three of them uh, for us today. Matthew 13, starting with verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Pray with me. Father God, we we pray against the work of the evil one. The work of the evil one in distracting us in his schemes to Get us to fix our attention on anything but what you have said. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and may your spirit work so that we are different people because we have encountered you here today. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Have you had the same experience, done the same thing, seen the same things as someone but had a radically different opinion of that experience. With kids, that happens all the time. And uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, memories is uh, spending a night at a uh, suburban Chicago hotel. I had a free night at a hotel. It was just, you know, using some points. We just needed a night to, you know, crash. Got to keep going in the morning. And um, walked off the elevator. It looked like a condemned building. I, I kid you not. I, I was horrified. And you know, I, I've seen some you know rough looking hotels and buildings and stuff. But I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And everything in that hotel screamed dingy, dirty. It was one of those hotels where you might like do I really want to get under the covers? Like, what could be lurking under there? And even looking at the ice machine, like, 
yeah, I'll use you. I mean, an ice machine is an ice machine, but like, I, I don't know. I, I would, I was like, I, I don't think we should put that ice in water. Like that, that's, that's disturbing and dusty. And it was one of those hotels that they had converted from like a convention center. It's like they had given you $200 and said, make this into a nice rainforest. And I mean, Michelle and I agreed, like, we are never returning to this hotel. We're not even considering it, like, not going close to, I mean, they could spend as many, much money as they want, like, we, we've had enough. And to, uh, on top of all that, there was parrots in the center of the hotel, you know, convention center area. And you could hear these parrots while you were trying to fall asleep. But Hosanna and Mercy had a radically different opinion of this hotel. Why? The hotel had parrots. And you could hear them while you were trying to fall asleep. I mean, that they loved it. They like, when can we go back to that hotel with the parrots? The second Tuesday of next week. Like... <laughs> Not happening. Yeah, and then on that same trip, I mean, we stayed at a hotel, like a four-star diamond hotel, floor-to-ceiling windows, you know, gorgeous. Like, uh, that, 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 like, was something that really excited me. But to them, like, we had experienced the same thing at that hotel. But man, those parrots, quite attractive. They, we, we had done the same things, but there was a major discrepancy in how we interpreted, how we understood those events, those things. And likewise, we've seen in the last few weeks, and we'll see again today, that there's a very similar thing at work in Jesus' telling of the parables. As people hear, hear they're, they're hearing the same words, but the parables are both hiding truth from those who hate Jesus, from those who don't have eyes to see, don't have ears to hear, and revealing very deep, intimate truth to Jesus' followers. That some, many of the people listened to these stories and they went away unfazed, back to their normal lives, didn't do anything for them, but Jesus' followers were granted understanding to not only get the meaning of the parables, but, but to be changed by them and the deep truth contained in them. And today we have uh, three short parables. And, and my prayer is that you understand these parables and that these parables enliven our affections for this uh, kingdom that we're talking about today. All three of these parables as you probably saw when you were reading over, they all start, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So, so the, the first one, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Very short parable. Re- remember, this is in a world 
without formal banks. Yes, there were money changers, and, and you could loan much money at interest, but the government wasn't providing a $250,000 guarantee on, on savings accounts. You know, therefore, it was common practice to bury treasures like gold and silver in the ground. This was especially true in times of political turmoil and uncertainty. If the treasure was hidden, you one lessened the risk of someone coming in and stealing it. But the flip side of that, so, so lessen the risk of people stealing it, but there's a different risk you're bringing into play if you're deciding to bury a treasure, is that the person who buries it or people who know where it is could die, could, you know, pass along notes of where it is, how those notes get passed along, who remembers, you know, that the, there's a risk involved in, there, in that too. And the, the risk is that no one, when they really want the treasure, no one knows about it, no one knows where it is. And, and it, here in Jesus' parable, the, the man who comes across this treasure is probably a day laborer who discovers this treasure. That, then what does he do? He covers it up, sells everything he has to buy the field with his treasure, uh, with the treasure. And right here, some start to question the moral implications of Jesus' teaching. Because, put in modern terms, if a Chick-fil-A worker came across a huge treasure of thousands of dollars in the Chick-fil-A parking lot, would we applaud that Chick-fil-A worker for hiding it, covering it up, finding a way to buy the parking lot so he or she could have that money? Most of us are like, you should turn it in. Like, uh, that, that doesn't, I don't know about that. Oh, and what we must admit, there are a bunch of unanswered questions with this parable that honestly, it just seems like too much fun to not list some of them. What exactly is this man doing in the field? You know, how does he come across this field? Who owns the field? How did that person acquire the field? And Jesus answers absolutely none of these questions. Why? Because that's not the point of the parable. Where is the point of this parable found? It's found in the attitude and actions of the man upon finding this treasure and covering it up. What does he do? He goes and sells everything that he has to buy the field. And how does he do that? He does it with joy. That's the key word there. Yes, the the original audience assumed that as a day laborer who would probably come across this treasure, that this man didn't have much in terms of material wealth. But what is he doing? He's selling all of it. Anything. Whether it has sentimental value, who cares? And he's not doing it begrudgingly. He's doing it with joy. All that he has at the end of this transaction is the field. That's it. And his joy is overflowing. He's not second-guessing his decision to sell everything. He's not moaning about the things he ha- has to give up. 
you know, how long he's owned these things, whatever they be. He's not worried about the future, the long-term ramifications of his decision. Why? He sees the surpassing worth of the treasure that he has found. And the things that he formerly held dear, that he formerly had no desire to give up, give away, to sell. Now, who cares? Liquidate them. Whatever it takes to get the money to buy this field that has the treasure that he wants so dearly. That's the one thing on his mind. And as you and I think about this short parable, we're drawn to think like, that that makes sense. I'd love to come across a treasure in my backyard. I'm sure you guys would, would too. And a treasure that makes all the things I value so much completely expendable in comparison. And that, that is the right response to this parable. But it goes a little deeper. That the kingdom of heaven is the treasure worth joyfully giving up everything to have. You, you might wonder, so, so why are you saying the kingdom of heaven is this treasure? Isn't Jesus supposed to be our treasure? Well, well technically, as this parable started off, the kingdom of heaven is like, Technically, this treasure is the kingdom of heaven, but, but there's no way to imagine the kingdom without the king, King Jesus. The two are absolutely inseparable. Wanting Jesus without his kingdom is desiring a powerless Jesus. He's just a good example in that case. Wanting the kingdom without loving Jesus is Ultimately, worshiping oneself, wanting the kingdom for one's own use. The king and the kingdom have to go together. And Jesus says that it is wise to give up anything and everything to have this kingdom of heaven. The the king and the kingdom he brings is such a great treasure that everything else pales in comparison. And look how selling all the man's possessions to, to buy the field is described. Is it described as a sacrifice? No. Why? Well, he's doing this ultimately in self-interest to gain something of far greater value. And that begs the question for us today. Do you view Jesus and his kingdom that way. As we try to find ourselves in this parable, do I view the king, the kingdom and his kingdom like this treasure hidden in the field that I'm willing to give up anything and everything just to have? That there are plenty of things you will have to give up to follow Jesus. And the disciples were becoming painfully aware of some of those as Jesus has faced much opposition as we've seen already in this gospel. However, how you view those quote-unquote sacrifices depends entirely on the worth you are assigning 
to Jesus and his kingdom. If Jesus and his kingdom is the treasure in this parable to you, that you are willing to sell everything, liquidate it all, whatever it takes, just to have Jesus and his kingdom, whatever the cost won't won't be a big deal to you. Let's flesh out this concept a little bit more. Viewing Jesus and his kingdom as our treasure above all else, what does it do? Well, for missionaries, it compels missionaries like Matt and Alyssa Kuyper that we support with the IMB to go to the other side of the world, to East Asia, to share the gospel. They're kissing goodbye to many of the comforts here, not coming back for years, certainly not all that safe of a place to raise their three girls. But, but all that is not sacrifice in view of the treasure they found in Jesus and his kingdom. Viewing Jesus and his kingdom as our treasure above all else is what led us to plant this church. We, we could have been a whole lot more comfortable as part of one of the large churches in town. We could benefit from all the various ministries they can offer and the the services they have. But valuing Jesus and wanting to see more people meet Jesus and grow in him is what led us to, to plant this church, to minister to this neighborhood. And one more, valuing Jesus and his kingdom as our treasure above all else it's also what will help you fight temptation. We understand that fighting against sin isn't just focused on getting rid of the bad things, get rid of the bad thoughts, get rid of the bad actions, the bad desires, but it's about replacing those bad desires, the sinful desires, with an even greater desire a desire that is even more powerful. And that that will only happen if Jesus and his kingdom is my delight, my treasure, that I prefer Jesus and his kingdom, what he wants more than my sin. And then Jesus tells another parable in the same vein, that the parable of the hidden or the parable of the pearl of great value. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. So, so this parable has a merchant. Think substantial trader, not just a local retailer, as, as the main character here. He has significant wealth and is searching for fine pearls, which were basically the diamonds of the ancient world. It's assumed he knows proper valuation and bartering because that's essential to remaining as a trader, as a merchant in that world. 
and he's looking at the upper end of the spectrum, knowing that fine pearls will provide him the largest profit margin. But what happens? He finds one pearl of great value. I, I love how A.M. Hunter and R.T. France say it. In the face of the wealth that demonetizes all other current currencies, prudent calculation gives way to ex- extravagant action. He can't help himself. He, he stops the search for other fine pearls as he's seen many and he knows they cannot compare. He goes as far to sell everything, kind of like our, our first the parable here, to sell everything that he has, which in this case is assumed to be sizable. As for a merchant, he has to have some sort of wealth to, to buy these uh, pearls he's in, uh, in search of. And he would only do this if he believed and was convinced this was the business deal of a lifetime, knowing that he could get the wealthiest of his clients into a crazy bidding war for this great prize. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. There's significant overlap and the point of this parable and the point of the last, the, the kingdom of heaven is viewed as a treasure, a treasure worth selling everything to get. And that there's joy done in this uh, selling everything. But, but we see a couple twists here, a couple added details as these uh, parables help us m- better mutually understand each other Jesus implicitly here commends the action of seeking. And this kingdom is not manifest to everyone. And so who finds the kingdom? Those who are seeking it. And we cannot escape the truth, closely related to what we just discovered, that the kingdom of heaven is of immeasurable value worth seeking intently and giving up all to have. The, the, the reader can't help but think of Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 6, verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And ethnic Israel has not recognized Jesus, welcomed him as the Messiah. Why? Because, Jesus' point here is because they have not sought the kingdom. The kingdom is of tremendous value. And that value is not apparent to all. There's a need for a shrewd eye for this value. And, And that's why it can be right in front of those like the Pharisees. And completely overlooked. While at the same time can be worth and worthy of giving up everything to have. Well, what does it mean for us to seek the kingdom of heaven like a merchant in search of fine pearls? It means that this joy found in Jesus requires work. 
I don't mean that in the sense of earning God's favor. Jesus has already on our behalf earned all of God's favor for us. And instead, I mean that by our nature, we do not default to delighting in Jesus. Uh, by our nature, uh, finding joy in him is not the path of least resistance. And, and that means we have to work. We have to fight for that joy. We have to diligently seek this joy found in him. And more concretely, let me give you an example of how this works itself out in, in my life and probably yours too. Yeah, I may wake up in the morning not feeling like Jesus' kingdom and King Jesus is the most important thing going on in my life. I feel like my schedule, to-do list, you know, got these meetings, etc. And, and I may not feel like reading God's word, but as I, I push myself knowing that hearing from God will help me delight in him, I, I find that joy. And, and even in reading God's word, I understand that some of the truth that God wants to stir my affections for him isn't going to always just come out and jump off the page and, and bite me. No, it, it may require prolonged study. May may be difficult. It actually, actually, at first read, I might recoil at a passage of Scripture because it doesn't present God the way I would like him to be. But the hard work of seeking intently this kingdom of immeasurable value means I do not stop there, but I let the Spirit change me, change my thinking so that I see Jesus and his kingdom as this treasure, as this fine pearl, that worthy of selling everything to have. This kingdom ruled by Jesus is worth seeking with all my being and giving up all to have. And that leads to the next parable, which seems to have almost no relation to this one-two punch of short parables we've just read. This parable of the net, verse 47, starts the same way. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable, you might think, I, I heard some of this. Like, tell me I'm not crazy. Well, you're not fully crazy. Um, this parallel uh, parallels the parable of the weeds as the end result is nearly verbatim in the explanation to that parable. The, the net is a large dragnet thrown between two uh, boats or, or by ropes from the shore. And what, what does it do? It, it gathers all kinds of fish along with other creatures and things in the sea. And, and no experienced fisherman would feel com 
compelled to pull up that net quickly. It's not like pulling up a fishing pole, you know, just quickly oh, reel it in, throw it back out. No, no, no. This, this is a multi-person work. This will require a lot of work and require a lot of work to cast it out again. And no experienced fisherman will feel compelled to, to pull it up just is because he's seeing some things he doesn't like mixed in with the good fish. No, no, he'll be wise and patient and wait for the net to be full and then draw it ashore with his fellow fishermen. And at that time, they'll go through you know, sorting out the good from the bad you know, based probably on their suitability to eat. And Jesus interprets this parable with his focus being on the final two clauses of verse 48. Sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. We see the angels are the one who do the separation and throw the evil into the fiery furnace. And their presence occupies a role of the angels in this parable, but not even a, not a leading one, as the fishermen are not even specifically mentioned in the telling of this parable. So, so this separation, what, what is that? Well, this is not specifically looking within the church, although there certainly can be evil people pretending to be the righteous. This is of all mankind. And this is a conclusive distinction that will be made on the last day. In particular, from this gospel, who do we know are the the bad fish, the evil ones that that are thrown into the fiery furnace? Well, well, Jesus has indicated that that certainly looks like a lot of the Pharisees ends up being much of the crowds who had some appearances of interest in Jesus, some appearances of following him to one extent, but certainly didn't see him and his kingdom as the treasure they are. And later on, we'll see in Matthew's gospel that it even includes Judas, who was part of the twelve, but reveals that Jesus and his kingdom is not his treasure. And in Jesus' interpretation of this parable, he certainly ups the ante because the, the typical fisherman, when sorting out what is useless to him, what is he going to do? Is he going to throw, throw it back into the sea? Maybe throw it into you know, the weeds, be, be trashed? But, but look what, how Jesus interprets. He's throwing into a fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's interesting here that the fate of the righteous is not directly addressed, although Jesus certainly covers that in other parts of the gospel and his audience is well aware of those teachings. But the focus here is on the separation and the fate of the wicked. And and when seeking to understand Jesus' kingdom, we cannot ignore the truth that the kingdom of heaven 
involves a radical separation on the last day. See, Jesus' kingdom is very good news for you if you love and cherish Jesus. But, but, but if you do not, it is not good news. It is not pleasant news for you. Because this is not a Jesus who ignores unrighteousness. This is not a Jesus who can be fooled by appearances. This is not a Jesus whose long-suffering should be interpreted as an unwillingness to execute judgment. And if that freaks you out a little bit, good. You're starting to understand what Jesus was teaching. You see, you can fool us, have an awfully convincing conversion experience. You can fool friends, family. You can even go so far as to get yourself to kind of believe that all is fine between you and the big guy upstairs. But you're not fooling Jesus. It's his angels who will make the radical separation on the last day. And and for those of us who do love, delight in Jesus, what, what does that mean for us? Well, A, it should floor us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that Jesus came to redeem us at the cost of his very life. And it should free us up on mission to not feel like we have to sort it all out right now. How often do we want to pull up the net just to throw out one fish that we are convinced is bad? But we don't need to worry. God takes care of that in the end. We can focus our efforts on mission, knowing that will not the judge of all the earth do right and properly separate everything on the last day. And that leads us to this dialogue that closes these parables. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked them. They said to him, yes. And he said to him, them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus concludes the telling of these parables with a dialogue with his disciples. Back in verse 10, you might remember that the disciples had questioned why he is speaking in parables. But now he checks with them. And they profess that they understand his words. And this dialogue provides an opportunity for him to teach them one more truth. Jesus has no debate with whether they understand what he has been saying, understand all these things. Although their understanding will surely deepen as they continue following following him. Jesus indicates that the disciples, as a result, qualify as skilled scribes. This is in contrast to the many scribes who held, in that day, the formal position 
of scribe in Israel, but were blinded and could not understand Jesus' words. See, the, the scribes were, were a distinct body from the Pharisees, but, but mainly sided with them. And Jesus is replacing them with his followers who have far less formal teaching, but possess the interpretive key of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus come as the Messiah. And, and what has Jesus done? The, this teaching he has given his followers has trained them as scribes of the kingdom. This is descriptive, but it's not just that. It's a challenge to them to do what scribes were called to do. And he interprets that as bring out this treasure in teaching others. What is this teaching? Jesus describes it as a master of the house bringing out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I agree with R.T. Francis might be a little dig at the Jewish scribes who could only bring out what was old. And it is old in the sense of verse 35. It says that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus' teaching is new as he is the Messiah, but it is grounded in God's eternal truths and the Old Testament now properly interpreted in light of Jesus' coming. Truly, followers of Jesus are kingdom scribes proclaiming the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. You, you might feel a little weird being described as a scribe, knowing that there's not too much need to be copying by hand the, the entire canon. And maybe you assume I would be a pretty bad one at that. Like, I could barely copy two sentences without bringing in error. These scribes, you know, kudos to them. But, but, but that wasn't the, the primary and only function of scribes in Jesus' day. They, they preserved the law, but they also taught the law, gathering pupils around them. You see, it was still primarily an oral context with the vast majority of people. They, they didn't have a scroll at home. They didn't bring a scroll with them to read. They relied on people like the scribes for their teaching. And Jesus calls his disciples and us by extension to be kingdom scribes as we bring out of our treasure both the new and the old. So, so what implications does that have for us? Well, first of all, all of us are called to teach in some capacity or another. This isn't something just for the elders to do. This isn't something just for our missionaries. This isn't something just for the people who feel like they have the gift of teaching or the gift of evangelism. Maybe for you, it's telling your coworkers about Jesus. Maybe it's telling your kids about Jesus. Maybe it's encouraging brothers and sisters in the faith. Maybe it's helping disciple 
new or younger believer in the faith. And, and, and that leads us to the common objection when faced with the idea of teaching about Jesus, about his kingdom. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't really feel like I know enough. Or what if someone asks a really tough question? And this is certainly not something new as Jesus' followers, right in this passage, were feeling that same thing. Are are Jesus' disciples going to win a game of Old Testament jeopardy with the brightest scribes in that day? No, I mean, these were primarily fishermen. And here Jesus is proclaiming them as the true scribes, the kingdom scribes. We aren't to miss the radical nature of Jesus' message. Our connection with Jesus, giving us the ability to understand what others completely miss, qualifies us for this. This connects us, provides us with more understanding than even the most learned scholars who reject Jesus and his kingdom. You don't have to know all the answers to obscure questions to have the truth of Jesus' kingdom to, to share. And it's all based on his authority. Authority that we, we see at the end of Matthew's gospel. Authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. And, and lastly, this bringing out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Lastly, that's why we love the Old Testament. We're not New Testament Christians in the sense that we just chuck the Old Testament, don't talk about it, don't need it. Instead, we embrace it and believe it is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. We read the Old Testament differently because Jesus has come We have experienced Jesus and we believe it all points to him. That's why it's worthy of study. That's why we've, though we're spending a a while in the Gospel of Matthew, that's why we went through books like Daniel, books like Ruth. And we will continue to do that because we believe it all points to, illuminates who Jesus is, what he has come to do. So, So this kingdom of heaven is our treasure worth giving up everything to have? Take, take some time here to, to meditate on that. It is of immeasurable value, worth seeking intently. And at the same time, it evolve, involves a radical separation on the last day, as is only fitting for such a treasure. And we have this privilege of proclaiming this kingdom as we read the Old Testament in light of the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Let's pray.